Hi, travelers. Today is Friday, March 31st, and on today's The Continental Sports Podcast, Chuck Pollock from the Buffalo's Orlean Times gives us an inside look into the Bills. What does the team have to do this offseason to be a true Super Bowl contender? We open the show breaking down the Final Four and give our predictions into who moves on to the championship game. Shocker, Lamar Jackson and Dan Snyder both went out of the DMV. Kevin Durant struggles in his home opener as he returns from his ankle injury. And what the playoff picture looks like in the NHL as we head into April. Make sure to check out our link tree in the description of this episode where you can find the links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter accounts. You can also listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Okay, let's get started. Okay, the Final Four is set in Houston. Uh, first game, San Diego State, FAU, 609 on CBS. And then we got Miami and UConn at 849 following them on the football field, I should say, right? Who do you like in the San Diego State FAU game, Justin? Let's start there. Uh, who do you like in this game? Is it is it San Diego State? Just uh, do you think FAU's run ends here? I think the run for FAU does end. You know, they had a great run to the Final Four, but I think San Diego State is definitely going to be the much more proven team in this matchup. FAU, I think, um, you know, I think they can contend, but I think San Diego State eventually wins it and they will head on to the national championship game. I think it's going to be a pretty boring game, honestly. San Diego Mm. State plays very slow. Uh, They basically rely on their defense, not so much their offense. FAU is pretty much the only chance to win is going to be shooting the ball, but they've been shooting very poorly lately. Uh, They pretty much rely on their athleticism. But So I I, I could definitely see this game being a low-scoring game, depending on how FAU shoots and uh, depending on how fast uh, San Diego State wants to play. Uh, since the tournament play started, though, uh, San Diego State is keeping teams to 56.5 points per game, which I think is pretty amazing. Uh, only two of the seven opponents in the tournament play so far, uh, you know, since the Mountain West tournament started even, uh, only two teams have scored 60 or, or more points, and no team has scored 65 out of those seven teams. So definitely an elite defensive team. Um, yeah, do you uh, – do you uh, think that they play very, pretty good defense against FAU on Saturday night, or do you think FAU actually finds uh, some prowess in the three-point line? I think they played some decent defense as well. Um, I think FAU, you know, they, they definitely will play up to their defensive advantage in this game with San Diego State. And I, I think it's, you know, you're basically what you said. It's, it's maybe not going to be a boring game, but it's going to be a defensive slugfest. You know, I think the winner obviously comes out of the UConn-Miami game. We'll get to that uh, after the mm-hmm. preview of this game. But I think I think definitely FAU's defense, you know, played a part in why they got to the Final Four. And obviously their three-point shooting, which they rely on to really to make their shots. And FAU's chance, yeah, I agree. FAU's chance... I think they have what they have to do is play extremely fast, basically tire their players out by using their athleticism and speed. And just, I would say really heckle uh, San Diego state. They have, they have a very deep bench, uh, nine players this year, average 15 minutes per game. Uh, That's the, uh, they tied the most out of the six. Oh, they had the most of the 68 teams in the tournament as far as bench minutes goes. So I think that's a really, uh, 
interesting little nugget that the FAU can can turn on and really use this game as kind of like an X factor. I think they just tired out their players, use their bench and deep bench at that. Uh, and don't be afraid for players getting too tired because of the uh, lockdown defense that they're going to be playing the whole game because they definitely have people that can be coming in to, to relieve the uh, tired legs. Well, yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's going to be a defensive game as as uh, we've been talking about. I definitely bet the under for sure. Uh, uh, San Diego State uh, held four opponents this game, or uh, four opponents that they've seen in the NCAA tournament, excuse me, just 16 to 90, 16 over 94 threes made. So that's a 17% uh, in three points that, uh, three-pointers that San Diego State has held their opponents to this year. And like I said, FAU's really only chance, aside from the athleticism, like I was just talking about, is really living and dying by the three. So this game could definitely get ugly for FAU, and I think San Diego State ultimately does come away with this. Uh, it's going to be, like I said, bet the under. It's going to be a low-scoring game. Um, I would take the points, though, because low-scoring games, and especially games with slow pace, tend to you know, the spread tend, does tend to cover for the underdog in those games just because by the nature of how the game is played, the, the games are kept pretty close. But, yeah, definitely take San Diego State, rely on them to shut them down, sh shut FAU down on the three-point line, slow up the pace, and pretty much just lock them down defensively in every other aspect as well. Following them, uh, UConn and Miami. So Miami, first time in the Final Four in uh, program history. And UConn, however, definitely have seen some Final Four appearances. Uh, who do you like in the, this game, the Miami-UConn game? I actually like UConn here. I think Miami, you know, they had a good run. But I think UConn is definitely going to be the more proven team. I think this is going to be a great game, obviously, better than the first game. And I think out of this game, as I said, this will be the winner of the NCAA men's tournament. I agree. Yeah, and you're, you're going with UConn, you said, right, as the winner? Yes, I think yeah. UConn wins. Yeah, I'm going to go different. I'm going to actually go Miami. I think UConn's been playing really well. Um, uh, I think the U big men for UConn are better. Um, really, all, all Miami has is Nortcard Omier, uh, but we know that UConn has Sonogo, which is obviously a powerhouse. Um, but I think Miami's offense is just going to be too good for UConn. Uh, Miami averaging 87 and a third in the last three games in the NCAA tournament. So they had 85 against Indiana, 89 against Houston, and 88 against Texas. So I think that's pretty amazing, just their scoring prowess that they've been able to do. Um, but defense, definitely a problem. Uh, according to Ken Palm, uh, they are 30th in defensive efficiency. Or I'm, excuse me, they are 104th in defensive efficiency. UConn is 30th. 30th so um really the only way miami wins this game is to rely on their offense and try to outscore uconn uh that's that's really the only way i see miami coming away with this well yeah i think miami's defense you know they could definitely play better in this game but i think uconn really comes up here and just you know i think it's going to be closer you know it's probably going to be eight points or less, but I think UConn comes away with it in the end. Well, it's interesting you say that because no no matter what the first half score is, I wouldn't put Miami um, – I wouldn't put Miami under. Uh, I read a, a fascinating stat 
apparently my AME uh, in the tournament so far is minus two in point differential in the first half. However, they have a point differential of 46 in the second half for all tournament games so far. So that's pretty amazing. Like I said, don't count Miami out despite what the score is in the first half uh, on Saturday night because uh, they definitely have shown that they're a second-half team in this tournament with that point with that 46-point differential. And so, I, I you know, I, I definitely think that they can get on fire, uh, especially offensively, uh, coming out of halftime and give UConn a run from the money no matter what uh, the score is going into the, after the first half. Mm-hmm. Very much. UConn uh, blows out teams, though, uh, kind of speaking of which. Not concerning the recency bias they just had uh, this past weekend, but uh, this season, UConn has won 19 games by 15 or more points. Uh, that's one of the most teams – that's one of the highest in the NCAA, if not the highest. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's another game that I could see getting out of hand, right? If, if uh, Miami uh, can shut down UConn, I know they have bad defense, but if Miami picks a good game plan against UConn to limit their scoring and I, Miami's offense kind of takes over and runs the show, it can definitely be an interesting game. Uh, I don't think it'll be a blowout, though. It'll definitely be a close game. Uh, like I said, I think the San Diego State-FAU game could definitely get out of hand to be a blowout, but the Miami-UConn game, these teams are just too talented, uh, too good to allow uh, – that to happen and they're going to play tight to the very end. Yeah, I think so. It's going to be a very tight game. And, um, you know, I think this will be, this will be a very, very close game. I think both games are, are going to be a close tight game, you know, more so on the defensive side with the first game. And then the second game, more offensive, I'll say. I agree. Let's stick with basketball NBA though. Durant returned last night. Uh, returned last night to play uh, the Timberwolves. Um, so first home game for the Suns. Uh, he missed 11 games since going out on March 8th with, or excuse me, he missed 10 games since going out on March 8th with that left ankle sprain that we all know he accrued during, uh, during warmups there. Uh, how did you think his performance was uh, last night against our uh, uh, Wednesday night against the Timberwolves played 29 minutes, uh, five for 18 field goal percentage, uh, two for four in a three point line and only came away with 16 points, which is definitely not what we're accustomed to seeing Durant. I think uh, we're accustomed to him seeing a little bit uh, higher scoring, especially uh, particularly in the scoring column. And I, and I know the Suns fans aren't, they weren't happy by his performance and a little worried about how he uh, came out and showcased his home debut. It is a little worrisome. You know, he just came off an ankle injury um, and, you know, he hasn't been, you know, playing obviously, uh, you know, since he left the Brooklyn Nets, but um, you know, for Durant, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a big concern. You know, I think this is just him getting the rust off from not playing, but you know, Let's see what happens before the playoffs and, and going into the playoffs for Phoenix. You know, the Western Conference is wide open. Right now, the Suns are the fourth seed. They'll play the Clippers. Now, the Suns are only 41-35. and 35. The Western Conference looks pretty open, except for Denver, the Grizzlies, and, of all teams, breaking the playoff drought, 
which they did last night. The Sacramento Kings mm -hmm. are in the playoffs. So those are your top three in the Western Conference. But I think it's going to be Denver um, that comes out of the West. Yeah, you um, you talk about the Kings, right? Currently, as you said, five games below the Kings in the Western Conference standings uh, and only a half game above the Clippers. So that's, you know, it's, the West is a mess. I, I, I think Denver definitely ends up winning the West. However, uh, after Denver, it really is anyone's game in the West. And whoever's going to come out of the, whoever's going to come out of that conference, I think is definitely a question mark. Uh, I think a lot of people would say that the East is maybe a little bit more one-sided between the Bucks and the Celtics, but the West man is just anyone can come out of the West and really you can't put a finger on who that's going to be, but Wednesday night, the uh, Suns uh, did come out with a victory against the the hot Timberwolves. Uh, playing the Timberwolves were playing very well, but Suns were still able to come out uh, with a one hundred seven one hundred victory. Uh, Durant still undefeated when he plays for the Suns. Uh, when when Durant laces up, he has not uh, lost the game with uh, with the Suns yet. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, so yeah. Suns, I don't know what to make of them. I think this is Chris Paul has no excuses if they don't go far in the playoffs. Uh, I'm a little scored. I'm a little concerned with their scoring prowess. I mean, I know this is a, this is a season average. They are 18th in points per game at 113 in point seven. Now, obviously, like I said, that's a season average. Durant will help that a lot with his, what he can bring on a scoring basis. But defensively, they're solid. I mean, they're fifth in the league at just under a 112 allowed a game for their opponents. But let me ask you this. I mean, I know you kind of talked about their placement and where they are in the Western Conference, but where do you think the Suns go this year? What What is the Suns' ceiling, and what are your expectations for the Suns? I think their ceiling is to go to the NBA Finals, especially with that group of talent that they have. You know, even with Chris Paul struggling, they have Devin Booker. Now they have Kevin Durant. I think they can definitely, you know, they could make a run at the Western Conference Finals, but ultimately it looks like to me um they're going to they're going to they're going to get bounced in the second round. Yeah. Okay. Lamar Jackson uh officially uh officially asked for a trade through Baltimore. Uh not surprised by this. I think we all saw this coming. Uh, Baltimore fans, I th I've what I've been seeing online are Baltimore fans are on two sides of the road here, they are upset that they're losing him uh, or they want him gone. I feel like it's uh, they either feel, they either feel bad for him, Lamar Jackson himself, or they're so tired of all the drama that's happening with the front office that they just want him gone and rebuild. Where do you lie on that? Uh, are you a fan of Lamar Jackson? Do you feel bad for him or are you just tired of hearing about all this? And you just want, him to move on somewhere so there can be a different storyline in the NFL this offseason. Just move on, you know. Yeah. I mean, just pay pay the man already or trade him. Um, you know, New England's definitely interested in him. Um, you know, that could be potential. But um obviously what we saw Sante Samuel say to him today, you probably don't want to play for for Bill Belichick. But um that that, you know, especially Belichick's record and, you know, Asante Samuel saying that today on Twitter to Lamar Jackson, you know, there's certainly some red flags that can happen. Maybe he could go to New England. 
uh, but maybe not. You know, they have Mac Jones still, and um, you know, but I think the Colts. You know, that's another team to consider. The Commanders. Uh, that's another team to consider. They both need quarterbacks, but um, it turns out it looks like the owners don't want to give them that two hundred thirty million, possibly two hundred fifty million dollar guaranteed deal. And um, you know, that's that's not a great sign for Lamar Jackson. You know, I think he should mm-hmm. get. You know, I think he should get an op- another opportunity. But the problem with him is he's injured. You know, I don't think he's missed the final games of the season for a contract, but he's he's injury prone. And uh, that's what we've seen with Lamar. Even probably doesn't have the best arm, I think we can say. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, yeah. pay him. Give him Let's another shot. Let's talk about that. What Let's other talk team? about that. His style of play requires a lot of movement. And so I think that's why Lamar is in a pretty bad shape here uh, after betting on himself uh, this last year and really la- uh, really the last two years. Um, he requires movement. That's his style of play as a quarterback. Uh, if he was just a diamond dunk quarterback, stayed in the pocket and pass, I, he would be fine. But again, I think his style of play requires him to be very, very mobile. And I don't think his body uh, allows him the health to be that mobile and so what i'm trying to say is if he can't if he can't play in a game where he can really run around and be as explosive as he needs to be then i don't think he's a whole lot of use for the ravens going forward and i think that's that's why they're anxious about him and that's why they're anxious about paying him that top dollar because they for his style of play he needs to be in tip-top shape and his body just does not allow him to be in tip-top shape whatever it may be uh, so and, I, and I'm, I'm I'm concerned if the other owners feel the same way. And after these last two years, like I said, with him betting on himself, if they're going to have a hard time trusting him and giving him that contract that he wants. Yeah, it is a concern that the other owners feel that way and general managers. But, um, you know, he needs to be in tip top shape to play. I mean, but, you know, especially with that reckless style, you know, at dual threat, you know, dual threat quarterbacks get hurt a lot, you know, Russell Wilson, you know, even he's been injured, even Russell Wilson, even Jalen hurts a little bit, but I do think those two guys that I just mentioned do make the right decisions at quarterback, you know, Lamar Jackson, you know, that's a rougher, you know, he just makes pretty bad decisions with the football, Josh Allen, even, you know, as great as, Mm -hmm. as he is, Big running, you know, he's like a big running back, as Chuck Pollock's going to say here uh, in our interview. You know, he's plays like a running back more than than a quarterback when when he runs. He just takes matters into his own hands, and that's what I think the owners are seeing with Lamar Jackson. I think that's what some of the teams are seeing, but that is the new style of play in the NFL today is dual-threat quarterbacks. The classic pocket passers, the Tom Brady's, the Peyton Manning's, the Drew Brees, uh, the Aaron Rodgers, you know, I think those guys are kind of fading out and there's more dual threat guys in the league. There's more, maybe not, I wouldn't say dual threat is is the right word. You know, Lamar Jackson mm-hmm. probably more is a dual threat quarterback. Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts, Russell Wilson, you know, those types of guys are more of a dual threat quarterback. Yeah. You know, Mahomes as well. 
could be a dual threat guy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we don't see, you know, we see them pass, but they're not the classic pocket passer, Tom Brady, Eli Manning, Peyton Manning type of quarterback that, um, that you saw five, right. 10 years ago, even. Yeah. So, and I think anymore, we are seeing a shift towards dual threat quarterbacks. I mean, there's not a whole lot of quarterbacks left in the league, like you were saying, that really do just hang out in the pocket. I mean, the days of like people like you were saying, Drew Brees or Peyton Manning, that's not really the case anymore. If you want to be a quarterback in the NFL, you need to be able to run. And that's what that's what we're seeing. And so it, I think it's an interesting take to kind of say that maybe this is bringing down Lamar Jackson's stock a little bit, because when he first came out of college and when he first came out of Louisville, that was his big thing. And that's why people were so hyped about him is because he could throw the ball, but also run and run very well. But we're seeing that every quarterback now that's coming out of the combine and the draft, they're all able to run because they're that's, just the, that's mm-hmm. just the style of quarterback that you need to be in order to play in the, in, to play in the league. So you said that you're on the side, again, the two sides that I'm uh, for the Baltimore fans is they either feel bad for him or they want him gone. You're on the side that you want him gone. I'm actually on the side that I feel bad for him. I mean, he bet on himself. And at the end of the day, I would say that he lost. I mean, he lost the bet. He's still an amazing quarterback though. Uh, I mean, this year alone, seven and three, despite the bad offense, the Ravens uh, front line or front office, I should say, gave him. Um, but at the end, like I said, it's it really is a sad story kind of speaking about that, just how the Ravens really did not maximize their offensive abilities uh, when they had Lamar Jackson on that uh deal of a contract in his rookie contract. They they did not maximize him at all. They for some reason, Baltimore is still set against hiring and signing uh, knockout wide receivers. Uh, again, just I feel like the whole time Lamar Jackson has been there, their offense has just been so subpar, and they didn't get the they didn't get his worth out of him when he was there. And I think Lamar Jackson sees that, and that's why he ultimately wants out. Real fast, I've I've been seeing a lot about the Ravens eyeing up Anthony Richardson's in the draft. Uh, a Florida Florida QB, very very good arm at the car, combine. Also, very impressive on his running ability, just like Lamar Jackson. Uh, I think that'll be an interesting draft pick for the Baltimore to go after in the event that they do end up getting rid of Lamar Jackson. I think that would. I mean, he would be just as interesting. As Lamar Jackson, you know, great running ability, great passing ability, even, you know, maybe potentially he's the best quarterback in the draft besides C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young. But, yeah, I think that, um, you know, the Ravens should look into that, especially if they're going to get another first-round pick for Lamar Jackson. Could they trade up potentially? Definitely. Other news in the NFL? Um, Commanders. Finally, looking like they're going to get somebody by the to buy the um to, to buy the team. So there's two. I saw two actual bids that are in contention that are actual legitimate bids that Dan Slender will consider consider and that actually matched his six billion dollar asking price. So the one we have is between the trio of uh. Josh Harris, Mitchell Rails, and Magic Johnson. Uh, jo- Josh Josh Harris, as we know, is 
part owner of both the Sixers and the Red Wings. And we the all know Devils, who Magic Johnson so, is. Oh, yes. The Devils, not the Red Wings. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, getting my colors mixed up. Yeah, thank mm. you. The New York, uh, the New Jersey uh, Devils, thank you. Uh, but the other uh, bid is from a Canadian billionaire. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. Uh, well, I will for giggles. Uh, it's my first time actually trying to pronounce it. It'll be it'll be funny. <laughs> it'll be a funny thing for me to try to do. Um, Steve Apostolopoulos. I Apostolopoulos. Greek huh. name for sure. Like I said, a Canadian billionaire, uh, venture capitalist. Uh, yeah, so he's also in the running. I think from what I hear online, the trio of uh, Josh Harris, Mitchell Rails, and Magic Johnson, they're the more the more in contention. They're the more legitimate uh, favorites to come out with this. Um, but that we, I know the Commanders fans and the Washington D.C. fans are just absolutely thrilled about the selling of the team. This is their Super Bowl. They've been waiting for this their whole life. Everyone hates Dan Snyder. I don't think there's a single Washington D.C. sports fan that likes Dan Snyder. Um, so yeah, I think I'm just very happy for the for the Commanders fans. Yeah, very much. I think this is their their Super Bowl. Um, you know, they've been waiting for a long time for Dan Schneider to sell this team. And, uh, you know, it looks like um, it looks like they have the biddings of Josh Harris, Mitchell Rails and Magic Johnson and Stephen. Apl- now I'm now I'm getting tripped up over uh-huh. here. Look at uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with the Canadian billionaire, I should say. But Jeff Bezos was in the running, but Dan Schneider didn't want to sell it to him, even though Jeff Bezos has a lot more money and a lot more resources than those two groups that we just mentioned. Um, You know, I think it would be interesting to see Bezos run an NFL team. I think it makes sense, but does he have too much money? That's the question. And Dan Schneider does not like him, apparently. Well, my my thing is, I don't, I can't, I don't even think of Bezos having any knowledge of football. True. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, again, he can or always knowledge hire of people. Amazon and, you know, package deliveries and whatnot Biz, and just business. outer space. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know I've seen him in games. I've seen, you know, ESPN will flash from when he's at games and Fox and CBS will flash him. But I, I, I don't, like, I don't, when I think of Bezos, I don't think of a sports fan. I think of a business guy, uh, go to sports games for fun, but, I don't see him being like living and dying at football and knowing a bunch of things about the game. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Dan Snyder didn't want him. I know Bezos never actually put in an official offer and an official bid for the commanders again, just because I think he knew that him and uh, Snyder probably have talked on the side and he already knew that he just wasn't going to be a good fit. But what do you think this um, with this new ownership, coming into play now again we're not going to know for sure uh if any if we know anything it's not going to come until uh may 22nd that's when all the owners are set to meet again and as we all know for a team to be sold all the owners have to unanimously agree Mm -hmm. yeah so the owners don't meet again in the nfl uh until another uh almost two months here may like i said may 22nd if they do end up selling the commanders 
what do you think happens with Ron Rivera? Do you think he's going to be shipped out with Dan Snyder, or do you think the new owner gives him a chance? I think it really just depends on the QB situation uh, over the next year or two. Would you agree? I would agree. You know, I think they have a deep team, actually. You know, they they need a quarterback, but I think, um, you know, I think Rivera is going to stay. You know, if they miss the playoffs, my prediction, I think, you know, as we've seen new owners do, you know, through the time of sports, I think they're going to fire Rivera if the if Washington doesn't make it mm-hmm. to the playoffs. I think they will fire Rivera um, and bring in a new coach. You know, Eric Bieniemy could potentially be a new coach. You know, everybody wanted him to be a new coach, you know, outside of Kansas City. You know, him being the offensive coordinator now in Washington. I could see this potential scenario. Washington's two and six or they're out of the playoff picture. They're not their last place in the NFC East. Ron Rivera loses his job. Eric Bieniemy's the new head coach and probably not just the intern coach. He could be the new coach, you know, mm-hmm. off the interim tag replacing Rivera because Bieniemy has gotten a lot of coverage, you know, he's mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people want him to be an NFL coach. I think this is I think this is his time in Washington potentially. Ron Rivera might be on the hot Ron Rivera in my opinion is on the hot seat especially if they miss the playoffs or yeah. they're well, out of it, it by I think it could happen October. even before the playoffs. I think it could happen even before the playoffs. True. If they go if they start the season off yeah I don't even know say like 2 and 6 yeah, two and seven. I, they're I, out of it by, yeah. by uh, you know, October, November. I can see a coaching change uh, coming into play in Washington, and I think Eric Bieniemy's that guy. The biggest factor for me with Rivera is the uh, quarterback situation. If Sam Howe doesn't work out and then Jacoby Brissett isn't getting it done either, I think that's what Dan Slander's ultimately going to be hanged for is his handling of the uh, quarterback situation. Uh, again, it could happen midseason. It might happen at the end of the season. We don't know. But if Sam Howell doesn't work out, uh, I, I, despite even their record, I could definitely see the new ownership uh, axing uh, Ron Rivera and bringing in somebody else that knows how to really develop quarterbacks and try to bring in somebody that's going to be a franchise name for a long time in Washington. I mean, the Carson Wentz situation alone was enough to fire uh, Ron Rivera, just how he handled that situation and, and the mess that that left the team in uh, once they got rid of him. Yeah, very much. And I think it's going to be interesting if Josh Harris buys the team, which I want to get back to. So he owns the Sixers and the Devils. So mm-hmm. I want now the, the talk of Josh Harris buying a rival of a Philadelphia sports team as I've been hearing all week on Philadelphia Sports Radio, you know, he is a businessman, you know, he's looking for more billions in his pocket, you know, he's looking for a lot more money. But for Josh Harris buying a rival of Philadelphia sports team, what the, the question is, what's next? The Mets, the Braves, a rival of the Phillies. So he owns a Philadelphia basketball team, but he owns the Sixers but he owns a rival of the Flyers and potentially a rival of the Eagles. What's next? A rival of the Phillies? That that will be remaining to see. <laughs> well, also owns 
part of the Steelers too, uh, which I don't know if you yeah. knew. I didn't know that when mm. I saw that. I was surprised when I saw that. He he is a part owner of the Steelers as well. And I've heard that if he does end up going through with the commanders, I think he would have to sell that yes, Steelers stake in order mm-hmm. to, I don't know, afford it, I guess. I, I, I really don't know the details of that. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh Washington's a little bit closer to Pittsburgh, I guess. Might be easier to get the games, <laughs> control things from Philadelphia. Easier, mm-hmm. easier to control things from two and a half hours away than five hours away, which yeah, is true. probably his <laughs> intention there. But let's go to hockey now. Uh, about, I would say, at this point, seven, eight games for each team as we head into the playoffs here. Uh, we got some – West is definitely less uh, – so, excuse me um, – West has more potential for movement as far as playoff picture pictures go than the East does. And let's get into that. So currently in the standings we have in the, in the Western conference, anyhow, um, we have um, Seattle and Winnipeg in the wild card with uh, Calgary and Nashville actually very close behind. So Seattle, uh, Playing, they've been having poor goalkeeping all season long. Uh, rookie of the year candidate, well, potential was rookie of the year candidate. Maddie Beneers has not been playing well at all. Um, so I, I think Seattle actually is definitely a name where Calgary or Nashville could uh, take them over for a wild card spot and make the playoffs. Well, yeah, it looks close in in the Western Conference. Uh, you know, could the, you know, Flames and potentially the Predators overtake the Kraken and the Jets? Uh, you know, I think the I think those teams are very, um, you know, they're very close, obviously, and um, you know that's pretty much the only wild card race in in the Western Conference, as you said. Mm-hmm. The East looks pretty pretty set, but Florida's just a point out. You know, could the Sabres make of Pittsburgh for the last wild card spot in the East? You know, could the Sabres make noise? I mean, they're five points. The Senators, mm-hmm. the Capitals, they're all 77 points. But, um, you know, I, I do think Seattle and Winnipeg hang hang on here in the West. Winnipeg, however, six, seven, and one in March. Six wins, seven losses, one tie in the in the month of March. So not playing well. Uh Heading into the final stretch here, uh, they are their next four games are against weak opponents. However, so that should help Winnipeg. But again, I, I Calgary and Nashville. I think Nashville's a bit of a on a slump right now as well. Uh, I mean, they're missing their entire top line, um, so I think Nashville's going to have a problem. The Flames are third in expected goals this year. However, dead last. Dead last in shooting percentage and 28th in the league in, in save percentage. Uh, so I think the Calgary are going to have problems uh, scoring enough to make up the points that they need to get over Seattle and Winnipeg. And really, you were mentioning the, any other teams in the East or West. I think anything above five points at this point, uh, with only how many games left in the season, that's just I think way. That's a done that, deal. That's too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so let's go to the East, though. So you said you mentioned the. Sabers. So what I just said about what I just said, f- uh, five points too much. Uh, they are currently f- five points behind. The, the next would be wild card in the Penguins at uh, eighty. Penguins at eighty two and uh, the Sabers at seventy seven. 
So really the only contention through jump is the Florida Panthers. Now, uh, Florida, uh, they, uh, they, they're interesting. I mean, they, they were a team we didn't really consider. I know when we talked to Chris Peters about two weeks ago, or, uh, excuse me, about a month ago, uh, considering just the second, you know, we were outlining and previewing the second half of the NHL season with him. I, Florida was a team that I think he even completely just dismissed and didn't even have a chance to be in contention once the playoffs go around. But now here they are, and we see Florida actually knocking at the bit in the Eastern Conference. I think there's a chance that they catch Pittsburgh. You know, the Penguins, they've been – you know, they're not the same team that they were five years ago, obviously, down the line. But this year, you know, they're kind of in a rebuild. You know, they're a much older team. You know, as they say, hockey is a, is a young man's game. And I think the Penguins, you know, they, they could get the wild card. I think there's a good chance. But Florida, I think, is, is right behind them. And uh, the first wild card, obviously, being the New York Islanders. Uh, the Islanders definitely... You know they've they've definitely revved it up here in the last uh, last couple months of play. You know they've obviously swept Pittsburgh. They're a much better team, and uh, you know I would be be interested in seeing if Florida jumps both Pittsburgh and the Islanders. So the Islanders be be interesting to see them play Boston in the first round. You know as Boston being a 119 points. You know, they're going to have possibly the most points in a season, in a single season in NHL mm-hmm. history and wins. But I think, but I think, um, you know, they could potentially lose in the first round. You know, well, we've seen that in hockey before. You know, the Islanders could definitely challenge them. You know, the Islanders have been good in the playoffs, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, even with Barry Trotz being fired, you know, you still have this kind of the same evidence there a little bit with Lane Lambert as their head coach. But um, I think Boston, you know, could they could they slag a little bit? They could. We've seen that in the hockey playoffs. You know, the Pist- you know, the Penguins have the longest active postseason birth streak in all of Major League Sports in America. Yeah, 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 it's pretty amazing. I saw this on the ringer earlier. Uh, they have not missed the playoffs since the 2005 2006 season. So, yeah, like I said, uh, longest streak in playoff berth in, in all major sports in uh, America. Pretty amazing. So, if history repeats itself there, I think Penguins stay in. Uh, Florida, though, has been playing really well. I, I mean, like I said, Florida is six points below the islanders i they don't take they don't take over the islanders so in the east the only movement we're going to see is between pittsburgh and florida and we'll see what happens there as we lead uh lead into april here and get get ready for the nhl playoffs should be a fun time it should the hockey playoffs are definitely you know out of all the playoffs you know hockey you know in the regular season it's fun but in the playoffs it gets even better and it gets even crazier too because there could be some upsets as well. All right, let's switch gears now and head over to Buffalo. Uh, not talking about the Sabres, but we're going to talk about uh, the Bills with Chuck Pollock from the Orleans Times up in the Buffalo area. Uh, we'll talk about uh, their offseason, what they need, 
the trades that they were expecting to make and they have made this year so far, and especially what they need to do in the draft uh, when it comes up here in a couple of weeks. So without further ado, let's bring on Chuck Pollock. All right, we now welcome on Chuck Pollock from the Olean Times in Buffalo. Chuck, uh, Buffalo, the Bills, lost to Cincinnati this playoffs, uh, 27 to 10. Um, would you say this is one of the worst playoff losses in the, the Bills' history, considering the expectations they had at the beginning of the season? Only because, Jared, it was at home. The worst playoff loss in history was a year earlier in that 13 seconds debacle at Arrowhead Stadium when they had the game locked up and found a way to lose it. That That's one of the ones that takes place with wide right and the Music City Miracle. That was an absolutely horrendous defeat but this was this was something they expected to do they expected if they could play at home throughout the playoffs they were going to the Super Bowl and they got their wish and as it turned out they came out flat did not perform well and they're now back they're kind of back to square one because they got a major mess with the uh, salary cap well, let's go from there. Where do they go this offseason? I mean, what would you say is their most pressing issue? O- offensively, definitely, I would say. I think a lot of people would say that, even people that are not, you know, don't know the Buffalo Bills very intimately. They would still say offense is something that needs to improve and help out Josh Allen a little bit. But where do you go on offense specifically? Do you go more a receiver or do you boister up the offensive line? Well, both. But I will say this. Uh, Circumstantially, they desperately need a number two receiver. And I got to say, this is I've been critical about a lot of things about them over the past year. But I give them a pass on Gabe Davis, because if you remember in that loss to Kansas City, that 13 seconds loss, he caught 14. he, He caught four touchdown passes. And looked like, hey, here's your number two guy. And all of a sudden, he comes into this year, and he was just another guy. He he just wasn't anything special. So Josh Allen is in a spot where he's really got to force the ball to Stephen Diggs. And happily for them, they kind of lucked out in the fact that Dawson Knox has matured enough that he's become a pretty viable target at tight end. But certainly they need a number two receiver. On the other hand... They had so many problems on the offensive line this year. There's a thought first, they need a left guard. Roger Saffold is going to be 36 years old. He didn't hold up late in the season. And sadly for them, a a very key choice uh, in 21 was a third rounder, Spencer Brown. They thought he was going to be the answer for a decade at right tackle. And he had a horrible year. So all of a sudden now they think, gee, we, we need two offensive linemen to upgrade where we need to be. So historically, the Bills have not drafted uh, wide receivers high. The last one they did in the top three rounds was Zay Jones. And Zay Jones was taken in the second round in 2017. That was before, before Brandon Bean got here. And he was a bust. He was absolutely a bust. And he ended up being traded and, uh, got to Las Vegas and he didn't do much there. And all of a sudden he materialized in Jacksonville this year 
and became a very viable number two pass receiver. But the next highest guy since Brandon Bean has been there has been a fourth rounder, and that's Gabe Davis. And last year we thought he had the problem solved. Now all of a sudden he doesn't. So it'll be it'll be interesting how they prioritize this. And the other problem is this: when you have a good season, which the Bills did, uh, you know they finished fourteen and four with the playoff loss, but they're they're really in a circumstance where they have a terrible draft area. They're going 27th. So <laughs> Brandon Bean, this is a make or break year for Brandon Bean. And I think a lot of people don't see it that way, but Buffalo fans are at a point where they went 17 years between 2000 and 2017 without a playoff berth. Now they've made it five of the last six since McDermott has been coach. They're fine with making the playoffs, but now the expectation is, hey, you got to get a bit farther than this. So there's a lot of pressure on both McDermott and Bean to kind of make that happen. Well, it's a lot of the a lot of the pressure comes from Josh Allen, right? Too like he's such a perennial player. Everyone knows that. Everyone would say that. So a lot of the pressure comes from not wasting that talent and getting the pieces around him that will help him showcase his talent, really. Let's talk about that pick, though, the 27th pick this year in the draft. I would say a wide receiver, if me from an outsider, not from Buffalo, I would say a wide receiver would be the thing that Buffalo needs the most because, you know, Stefan Diggs will get, you know, double teamed to all hell, and that that's going to create a problem for uh, Josh Allen. And then not even that, but like you said, the pass or yeah, the pass rush is a problem this year for Buffalo. They can't hold off uh pass rushing. So I think either Boyster up that offensive line with a with the left guard or right tackle to replace Spencer Brown or get a wide receiver that Josh Allen can throw fast to. Um another interesting take I saw was maybe thinking about a tight end to fortify Knox. And what are your thoughts on that? What have people been saying about that? Well, you know, it's interesting, um, and this is not a small factor. Dawson Knox and Josh Allen are really good friends, and he's gotten so he's looking for him. And the problem that that Dawson had when they drafted him was he was just drop prone. I think his rookie year, he had nine drop balls, but he worked really hard in the offseason with a judge jugs gun, and he worked with a with, with a receiving coach and really improved his game they've got they've got a situation at 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 tight end where i i think they feel fairly secure from the standpoint that uh they have quentin quentin uh uh morris and he he's a pretty good blocker not a bad receiver so (laughs) you know what would exacerbate that though is if they can't come up with a receiver Jared, then I then they got a bit of a problem. I think they feel that Spencer Brown will come around. Roger Saffold's place is a little bit different, but I think you can sign as they did last year with Saffold. I think you can got, uh, sign a veteran guard who's a free agent. I think it's a little bit different trying to find a free agent wide receiver. It's not a real good year for that, with the exception of one Odell Beckham Jr., but they're really not in a position where they have money to spend on a guy who's going to demand top dollar. I think it's not a bad year 
to, to draft a wide receiver. But if you're going to do it, you probably want to get them in the first round and probably later. So the Bills are positioned well for that if that's the way they see the position of most need. There's also wide res- uh excuse me, there's also tight ends for free agency this year as well. You got Dallas's Dalton Schultz, uh Mike Kosecki from Miami, Evan Ingram from Jacksonville. So that's an that's another area that um Buffalo can look into going into is, you know, like you kind of said with the offensive lineman there, uh maybe looking more into the free agency route with the tight end to fortify Knox and not using your draft they, capital. They, they might, Jared, but the problem is they're so up against the cap right now. They're twenty million over, gotcha. and the cap is going to be a little over. I'm sorry, a little bit under two hundred twenty-five million. So they've got twenty-two free agents already. Some of them are restricted restricted rights, so they can keep that guy even if even if they're they're approached by another team. But I think I think they can live with what they've got at tight end. And I'll tell you, if they may if they signed expensively uh, a tight end, I think fans would be in a rage because they're clearly, they might be a little short staffed at that position, but I think they're satisfied with Dawson particularly. And the other needs are so crying and, and, and the circumstance with the, with the salary cap is so tight. Um, I think people would be really miffed say, Hey, you have other needs. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, is there any particular wide receiver that, the bills are eyeing up in the draft. I mean, like I said, 20, well, we both said 27th this year in the draft. What, any, what, what name are the Buffalo bills actually eyeing up right now as a potential wide receiver in this, in this year's draft? Jared, I'll tell you what, you don't hear a word about that. And, and as you get toward the draft, there are a lot of smoke signals thrown up and so forth. But I think in, in, in all seriousness, I think right now until free agency opens their focus their focus is there and if somehow they would luck into a wide out all of a sudden their draft need maybe changes but i have not heard a word of you know you hear about five or six names and at at this point i really haven't investigated them much because a lot can happen now and between the end of april when they got to make those decisions yeah and you know Put me in this scenario. So say it's draft night, first round. Um, like we keep saying, Buffalo is late in the first round, 27th. Talk me in the scenario where there's all the wide receivers that would be, you know, want to be picked first round are gone. You know, the Buffalo's not really interested in any of the linemen, particularly offensive linemen left. Do you see Buffalo potentially trading down to into the second round uh, and just getting more of a second round lineman at that point? I, I, I do, Jared. And, and there, there are a couple of reasons for that, not the least of which they only have six picks right now. So if you trade out of the first round, you're going to get two in all likelihood. So and <laughs> the other thing about it is. When you have a team that's so far up against the the salary cap, the one thing you love is signing guys to rookie contracts because for the next four years, you're going to have those players at a bargain discount. So I could absolutely see them doing that. And it's funny because uh, habitually, Brandon Bean has liked to trade up. He traded up to get 
Josh Allen. And I, I've got to say, I, I don't see Brandon Bean as a particularly good drafter, but the first pick he ever made was number 17. And that bought him a history in Buffalo that people, they give him a lot of room. Mm -hmm. So, but, but his subsequent quick picks in the first three rounds, which are your make hay rounds where you expect to get starters and they just, they just have had guys like Greg Russo and, and A.J. Epinesa and Ed Oliver who just have not performed to the first or second round level. And that's problematic. And that kind of comes back to the guy making the pick. But he also traded up to get uh, Tremaine Edmonds. And there's their key. That's absolutely their key own free agent because the guy's 24 years old. He's been criticized because he doesn't make a lot of big plays. He's not a sack meister, not a lot of forced fumbles or interceptions, but he's a tackling machine and he's become very good against the run. So they would like to sign him, but the market for him is huge. But to me, you make a huge mistake if you quit on a 24 year old guy with such an upside. So do you think the bills draft a running back or they look at a running back in free agency as well? They might look in free agency, Justin, but there's no way in hell they're going to draft a running back um, for a number of reasons. You can get a, a good running back second and third round. I mean, the Bills basically had two second rounders. So they let Zach Moss, well, they didn't let him go, but they traded him to Indianapolis for Naheem Hines. Uh, Devin Singletary has been okay. But you're still in a situation, and I think this is why they might look at a veteran if he was out there, where your quarterback has gained only 58 less yards than your leading running back. And that's a recipe for disaster, putting your quarterback at risk like that. Last year, regular season, seven touchdowns by Josh Allen, five by Devin Singletary. He ran only for, as I said, only 57, 58 yards more. So they need to get more out of a running back. But I think what they would really like is to have a power back. And Naheem Hines is not that guy. And Singletary is not that guy if they keep him. And Singletary is a free agent. So I, I, I feel very confident they wouldn't draft one until later. And, you know, be, the other thing is their life expectancy is five years in the NFL. So, you know, if you use up a, high high draft pick and you only got that guy for a while and you you look at somebody like Ezekiel Elliott and you get the idea that all of a sudden as high as he was picked he's kind of he's just a regular guy now and they're paying him a boatload of money so i i i think they'd like to get somebody but it won't be it won't be early how mad are fans that Josh Allen runs so much i mean i know they're not happy about it but paint me the picture of the fans because he's He's flirting with disaster a little bit with how much he runs, and in particular, the kind of runs that he does and the kind of hits that he takes with the runs that he does. Well, they're, I don't say they're angry, but they're concerned. And I, I got to say, Jared, I, I watch him take off at times, and I'm thinking, oh, my. And, you know, the mantra is he doesn't take big hits, but it only takes one. And you're talking the franchise right there, literally. Mm -hmm. So – I'm uncomfortable when it happens. He does it about half the time when he's when he's under pressure. But you know, it's become a it's become a mobile quarterback lead. But he's not 
he's not Patrick Holmes, Mahomes, or he's not Lamar Jackson. He he doesn't have that kind of speed and elusiveness. He's just a big, powerful guy with decent speed. So he's a little bit different than what we're expecting out of NFL quarterbacks these days and what and what the league is going to. But, you know, here's a guy who's got a major league arm. And, and so I think you have to think in terms of protect him, which brings us back to the whole thing with the offensive line. That's maybe where you start. Yeah, if the offensive line gave him some more time in the pocket, he wouldn't need to run that much. And exactly. to your point, too, are they are they not big hits or do they just not seem like big hits because he's such a big guy? <laughs> that's a that's an argument that you can definitely have because I, I don't think any hit in the NFL is not big. But I just think Josh Allen is just such a big boy that his hits just don't even seem that big because he takes them so well. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Boys throw up that offensive line, give him more time in the pocket, and then I don't think he would run that much. And uh, yeah, I agree. I don't think running back would be the issue. I just think giving him more time would be the be the first thing to do. What um, let's change gears a little bit in the next season. I um, I can kind of see Buffalo's season either being a repeat of this season or I don't know, potentially an improvement. I don't know how much better they can be. They obviously did very well in the regular season and made it into the, you know, midway into the playoffs as well. Um, you know, cause you, you paint a picture of me, Chuck, of a team that is kind of stagnant this off season. Can't really do much with, their draft pick one, and then two, the amount of money they have to spend with the salary cap issues. But at the same time, Buffalo was also riddled, riddled this year in, you know, just a lot of emotional drama, which we all know about. So what, what are your expectations for next year? Do they break out, go even further in the playoffs, or is it just kind of a, kind of a repeat and a run back of this year? You know, Jared, it's funny. People kind of look at, where they are now and last year and this stunned me before last season started the bills were picked to go to the super bowl and i was in shock you know naturally this is coming from las vegas but las vegas makes its decision based on what people are thinking Mm -hmm. and i was in shock i thought wait a minute did kansas city and cincinnati leave the league but there they were the pick to go to the super bowl the previous year I picked them to go 12 and five and people just laughed at me, told me I was out of my mind. What are you thinking? They went 11 and six last year. I picked them to go 12 and five again, and they ended up 13 and three, but I will tell you this, the game where DeMar Hamlin got hurt, what we saw in the, in the playoff game in Buffalo, the way they were eviscerated by the Bengals, that was going to happen that night in Cincinnati, too. So, in effect, in my mind, they were 13 and four. So, okay, I was one game off on that. The problem has been, as I mentioned, you know, people are hungry for this team to go farther than just making the playoffs. And as successful as Sean McDermott has been, he's four and five in the playoffs, 0 and four on the road. And the last three playoff losses, the Bills gave up an average of 36 points and 30 first downs. An absolutely horrendous performance by a team that was one of the best in the league defensively. This year, their schedule is absolutely brutal. 
17 game schedule or playing 10 teams that were in the playoffs last year on the road. They have both Super Bowl teams, Cincinnati, the Chargers, and Miami, which they had to get to the last play of the game to kick the field goal to beat them in the playoffs. So I don't see any improvement there. I, I'm thinking, you know, maybe maybe this is a team that 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 goes 11 and six. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's <laughs> this idea of the Super Bowl window being open. I, in my mind, it's probably closing for the Bills given the s- current circumstances, because to me, their chance was a year ago in that game in Kansas City when you're up and you just got to hold the lead for 13 seconds. Yeah. So well, speak about Sean McDermott. Is is he on the hot seat next year if they don't get it done in the playoffs? I mean, he's a great regular season coach. No one will deny that. But you, what you just told me paints a picture of somebody who isn't getting it done in the playoffs, which everyone knows that's really all that really matters at the end of the day. Well, it's it's funny, Jared, because you're right. His regular season record is terrific. He's 62 and 35 at 64% winning percentage. It's terrific. But I have been critical of him in print, and it's come up with other people as well. He's got some flaws. One of them is I don't think he's a particularly good game day coach. Uh, there are just a lot of dubious decisions that are made that seem obvious. He is terrible at challenges. He's challenged 27 times in his career in Buffalo. He's only, he's only won seven of them. And the other thing is, and this is really annoying and really obvious to fans, he's a serial waster of timeouts. And I uh, I ended up writing this week because this situation with Leslie Frazier does not pass the sniff test to me. I... Leslie is going to be 64 years old next month. He wants to be a head coach. Last year, he got interviews with the Giants and Chicago and the Dolphins. He didn't get any of those jobs. So this year, he got none. Uh, It's possible that he is just so fatigued with everything that happened, all the injuries on his defense, what happened with DeMar Hamlin. I don't discount the fact that maybe there are emotional issues and and the like. But to me, if you want to be a head coach, the worst thing you can do is take a year off when you're in charge of one of the best defenses in the league in the regular season. And something just doesn't seem right. And interestingly enough, when that announcement came, McDermott very quickly announced that uh, he was willing to take over the signal calling duties as well. And a lot of a lot of uh, NFL coaches do that. I think there's 17 NFL coaches who are signal callers, 14, 14 of them on offense, three on defense, and two of the new hires this year probably will call their defensive uh, signals. So it's not unusual. And there's always been this lingering uh, issue about the 13 seconds game because bizarre things happened at the end of it. And McDermott fired a special teams coach, inferring that it was his fault that they kicked the ball deep in the end zone so no time ran off the clock. But any person with common sense knows no special teams coordinator is going to unilaterally decide to make that decision on his own. Somebody told him to do it. 
And then, of course, in on that last 13-second drive, the Bills, even though Kansas City had timeouts remaining, they decide defensively to guard the sideline, leaving the field open in the middle for the two best receivers of the of the Chiefs, Tyreek Hill and 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 um, mm-hmm. um, their tight end, who who ends up Kelsey, yeah, 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 and and all of a sudden, you know, they're in field goal position, they tie the game, and the, win the coin toss, bang, they drive down and score. The Bills don't even get the ball. Nobody has ever explained the the dynamic of what happened there. And it's, he took the blame, McDermott took the blame, but it was one of those circumstances where every coach does that. Well, I'm in charge, so it's on me. Well, I, I think maybe there's a little bit more to it. He's a defensive guy and maybe he overruled Leslie Frazier. I don't know. But it's just interesting to me that Leslie all of a sudden is taking a year off at a very weird time. And McDermott now wants to take over, which plays to your thought. Maybe he does feel a little bit of heat because they haven't gotten far enough once he's gotten to the playoffs five times in six years. Well, you you paint this picture, Chuck, like I said, of a team kind of in purgatory right now. I mean, like I said, they have draft or uh, uh, salary cap issues a head coach who is struggling in the playoffs as you also painted so you said what you said 11 and 6 is your prediction this year for uh, I mean, that's what yeah, yeah that's what i'm thinking just based on the how tough the schedule is do you think that vegas will be the same way cuz i know this year going into this season they were super bowl favorites do you think that were do you think that repeats this year uh, it, the, the early ones I've seen, uh, that's exactly the case. The bills are are certainly in the top three, and there's some there are some betting services in Las Vegas that pick them to that they're, they're, they're the odds on team to do it. And I I just I have some skepticism. And and when you look at their schedule for 2023, and they're going to have a game in London. Uh, and by the way, we haven't you know we haven't talked about this at all, but. Uh, they're under a lot of pressure to get this stadium built and it's supposed to be, but it's dragging on and dragging on. And the owner, Terry Pagula, who's been a friend of mine for 35 years, we played racquetball together years ago. And, you know, he's distracted because his wife had cardiac arrest and has suffered enough brain damage that she really isn't in a position to take over as president of the two teams she was in charge of. And to me, that's his priorities are right. He's worried about his wife. But meanwhile, there's the issue of the stadium and so much else swirling around. His hockey team hasn't made the playoffs in 11 years. And he's, he's in a tough spot. Yeah. So it's, um, it'll be interesting to see how the, how Buffalo does this year. I don't think they get any worse this past season, especially in the regular season. But yeah, I mean it's it's that playoff um, cringe that keeps getting them every single year. They can't get past, you know, they can't get to the Super Bowl, right? They can't get past that AFC Championship game. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a huge Josh Allen fan, so I'd love to see him succeed. I know a lot of other people in the in the country and NFL fans are too. So we'll we'll see what happens happens there, right, Chuck? We will. And I, and I will tell you something, too. It's just interesting. When you're talking about their regular season, Jared, I, 
their three losses last year, last season and the regular season were were by two and three points. Close. They were that close to being well sixteen and zero because obviously the the Cincinnati game never did play out, but they were darn near perfect. And I I don't know what the mystery is in the playoffs, but after a point, it's clear to me Buffalo fans are saying, you know, this is great, but we want more. Well, Chuck, this has been really fun. I, I appreciate your insight into the to the Buffalo. Um, one last question I want to ask. I know a lot of people would be interested in this. Any um any insight and news on Damar Hamlin? Uh, I mean, any potential that he comes back in the future? I mean, it's hard to believe, especially next season. But what what have you heard in the in the locker room about his condition, how he's doing, what his plans are for the future? Jared, he's doing great. Uh, in fact, and he fully expects to be okay to play this coming season. And that seems extraordinary considering the severity of the yeah. circumstance that he had, because basically he died on the field. He did. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about that is it was a fluke. I mean, it was not anything wrong with his heart or anything. It just happened to, according to my understanding, that the impact he made on the tackle was just at a point in his heartbeat mm -hmm. that it stopped. And it's not unusual. And I, I didn't know that until afterward. And a lot of circumstances uh, materialized. And needless to say, a lot of people that happened to didn't have the privilege of having a skilled medical team that close. He probably, of course, the argument is it wouldn't have happened if he didn't play pro football, but yeah. uh, he was in the right place at the right time. And you could tell by when he got out of the hospital that it was so quick and he's around town, he's appearing before groups and he, he maintains he wants to play and the Bills, you know, they're very diplomatic about it. And they say, you know, we have to know that he's been okayed by all the medical people and so forth. Whether that happens, I don't know. But I will say this, I wouldn't be stunned if you see him in uniform next year. Yeah, that's like like you said, I'm sure the coaching staff will want every form from every doctor before they clear him. <laughs> but that's it, it is amazing to think. And, you know, I want to go back to your point. You just said how it really wasn't a football thing, right? It could based on the injury and what what exactly happened. It could have, you know, soccer, baseball, uh basketball anything it could have happened it wasn't a football thing and I think a lot of people associate how dramatic it was with the game of football which is also very dramatic but really at the end of the day the ironic thing is that it had nothing to really do with football it's just one of the most or the most violent sports in the world just ironically had one of the most dramatic instances on the field that we've had in a long time and that they really were not related Exactly. And, and it's interesting because the instance, the incidence of that happening in football is fairly rare. What normally happens is somebody getting hit in the chest with a lacrosse ball or uh, clearly a soccer ball that's just blistered and naturally a baseball if you're hitting the chest and there are a lot of documented cases of that happening and and you're right you know you think of this violent game and and 
no wonder this happened. Well, it's not no wonder because it's pretty much a rarity. And actually, you know, you do have the pads and so forth. So even, even with the pads on, clearly it happened to him, but it's much more common in other sports and, and mostly to younger people, you know, on the youth, on the youth level. Yeah. Well, and it's again, kind of ironic because we had um, RJ Choppy on from uh, Dallas area last last episode talking about how talking about Byron Jones's uh, comments last weekend and how the NFL training staff and the medical staff are, you know, unprofessional. They don't know what they're doing and, and all the like. And I thought it was ironic that that came out. That statement came out probably one of after one of the greatest showcasings of the medical staff in the NFL, probably in the history of the league. So um, yeah, that, that was just bad timing on his end. And it wasn't a good look on his, on a Byron Jones's end, but, but yeah, it, it was amazing. But to the best of your knowledge, he doesn't have any heart issues then DeMar Hamlin. No, it really was just no that, he doesn't. Yeah. Could have happened to anyone. Hmm. He, he has a healthy heart. He just had a circumstantial cardiac arrest. If there's such a thing, but it's interesting, Jared, the 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 uh, peripheral things that happened after his injury, because people in the Buffalo area and schools have all of a sudden really pushed to learning CPR. Mm -hmm. And these students who are learning just have eaten that up and, and feel like, wait, you know, maybe sometime I'll be called upon to save, save somebody's life. And I've got to say, even myself, you know, I've I've gone online to look at, well, what should you do in this kind of a situation? But it's it's an epidemic in Buffalo. So you talk about uh, the law of unintended consequences. Well, that's one because people in Buffalo, it, it opened their eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. It, sometimes it takes the NFL to do that. The biggest stage on earth, really. And it and that if it, if it helped the American Heart Association get a couple more downloads uh, this year, then that's hey, at least something a silver lining came out of the situation, and we're all just happy that Demar Hamlin's okay. Obviously, well, Chuck, I hope the Buffalo has a better season next year, as not record wise, but just the struggles they've had to deal with. I mean, you, we just talked about the DeMar Hamlin case. I mean, we obviously know that Bryson Knox's brother, Luke Knox passed away earlier in the seasons. They had injuries, you know, Macau Hyde, Jordan Poyer. We know Josh Allen had his injuries with his throwing arm. And, uh, you know, they had snow, uh, two big snowstorms that made them lose a home game, uh, really and you know i'm looking forward to buffalo coming back next year having a smoother ride hopefully for the team and the fan base and i'm excited to see what they can do next year well i will tell you this much jared if you're going to prioritize your wish list wish that von miller gets <laughs> healthy faster than tredavious white did the irony is both of them got injured on consecutive thanksgiving games yep. And Tredavious, who I thought would bounce right back, basically missed two-thirds of the season. Von Miller, who made such a terrific impact, he says he's going to be ready for the start of the regular season. I do not buy it. But it would be nice if he was back within the first four games because that guy is an impact player. You could argue that he's the Josh Allen on the other side of the ball. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I know a lot of people heard a lot of the takes about how the playoffs would have been different if, different if they had him as a threat on the other side. But, you know, can't can't write the past and can't 
speculate either. So, but yeah, but Chuck, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. We, you gave us some great insight in the Buffalo, especially in the next year, uh, going into next year. And I'm excited to see what they can do. Well, it's been a privilege to be uh, part of your project and be well. Thanks, Chuck. All right, Chuck Pollock from the Olayan Times. Uh, we'll do this again sometime, okay? Looking Got forward it. to it. All right, take care. All right, let's finish off the show with Off the Map and Long Hauls of the Week. Justin, who was your Long Haul of the Week? My Off the Map of the Week is the UConn Basketball. UConn Basketball has a very interesting program, both for men's college and even the women's college. UConn basketball has been the gold standard of college basketball, winning a lot of national titles in the March Madness tournament uh, for the men's side and the women's side. Gino Oriema being one of the greatest coaches in college basketball history for the women's side. And then the men's side, you've had a different array of coaches and talent come through there. They've been a great, they've been a great, college basketball school, and it looks like this week they can potentially win another national title on the men's side of college basketball. So you're saying that not enough people are talking about basically how – I think you're basically just saying people are focusing too much on a single game and not potentially the long-term implications on where UConn's at right now. You think they're going to – you're looking past this one game and that they're actually – after this tournament – they're going to end up even going on that, you know, becoming a gold standard in dynasty again, uh, like they were, uh, you know, 10 years or so ago. Yes, I think so. They've always been. Mm-hmm. My off, uh, yeah. So my off the map of the week is the angels. Uh, yesterday, uh, was opening day in the MLB. Uh, angels have a breakout off season every year. We already know this. I do think it's a little bit different this year. Uh, 90 million was spent in the offseason. Uh, they imp- they improved their offense even more with the additions of Brandon Drury, Hunter Renfro, Gio Urshela. I think they already, you know, they already have Shohei Otani, obviously, and Mike Trout. Uh, Anthony Rendon has looked amazing in the offseason. I am falling for the trap again. As I mentioned, they do this every year. They have a breakout offseason where everyone gets excited. Uh, Los Angeles fans and beyond. But I do think it's a little bit different this year. I think they barely – I mean, they, they did barely miss the playoffs last season. I think this is the year they finally do make the playoffs and potentially even make a run in the playoffs. So they're my off the map of the week. Not A team that not many people are talking about as uh, MLB starts up this week. But I think they're – I am going to be watching them closely. And, I, and I'm, I'm excited to see what they end up doing, uh, especially, you know, come September and whatnot and, and just where their positioning in the playoffs are. All right, your long haul of the week, Justin. Who was your long haul of the week? Well, my long haul haul of the week is in the NBA. Embiid and Jokic had a great chance to show off on Monday night to battle of two MVP candidates, but Embiid, you know, didn't play. Could it be because of load management? It could. Could it be because of a calf injury? It also could. We don't know, but I think that You know, if you want to rest players for load management, rest them against teams like the Rockets, rest them against teams without stars, because I think the NBA should prioritize star matchups like the NFL, uh, you know, provide star quarterback matchups like Aaron Rodgers versus Tom Brady, you know, like Patrick Mahomes against Joe Burrow, 
you know, even rivalry games, especially in the NFC East and in the NFC North and plethora of other divisions. I think that um, I think that the NBA should do that more. You know, there should be rivalries in the NBA, uh, not just for stars, but for teams in the division, just like in the NFL, the NHL, and MLB. I think the NBA does need to do a better job at marketing their mm-hmm. stars and marketing rivalries too. According to Joe Vardone at the Athletic. Uh, for the stars in the league, only five have missed fewer than five games this season. Anthony Edwards, Julius Randle, Demonte uh, De- De- Sabonis, excuse me, Shea Gilgis Alexander, and Jason Tatum. Uh, only five All Stars have missed fewer than five games, with the majority of the other uh, top level players in the league missing over nine percent of the games. Uh, Adam Silver in mid-February coming out in defense of load management, which is very surprising for somebody who is such an advocate for keeping the product as supreme as it can possibly be. I was very surprised to see him come out in defense of load management, but I think we all know as much as he likes uh, making a good product for the fans, he's also a very big proponent of being a lookout for the player and player safety and always trying to have their best interest in mind. So uh, yeah, that, that was interesting, but it, it, the, you mentioned the recent game with Jokic and Embiid. It only hurt Embiid that game for the MVP considerations, him not playing in that game. Um, but it is interesting. You always wonder why, and I know it's more complicated than this, but you always do wonder why these stars don't prioritize the games that they sit out for. Uh, I mean, like I said, Embiid missing uh, the game against the Nuggets earlier this week only hurt his MVP chances. Uh, not playing, you know, obviously it's him and Jokic right now is probably the biggest front runners to win the MVP uh, like it was the last couple of years. Uh, but he didn't play, and now Jokic has one more game up on him that they can use as a highlight reel for his considerations at the end of the year for the trophy. So, yeah, it was interesting. You know, fans hate seeing big matchups being missed. Like I said, I I think what fan uh, what the players need to do is they need to prioritize the games that they miss and the games that they play. And Bead sit out for a game against the Nuggets, or excuse me, sit out a game against the Rockets. But when the Nuggets come to town, you play and you show up and you give the fans a good product. But that's my uh, pivoting to that. That's my long haul of the week is actually the MVP race itself. Uh, I, I just feel like for the at least the last two three years, it's been uh, Giannis, Embiid, and Jokic as the front runners. Um, I'm personally tired of hearing about the MVP debate. I've never been a fan of the MVP debate. I'm not against the people that do like it, and I understand why they do like it as well. Uh, but for me, it's exactly that. It's just a debate. No one's ever going to be right, and very few people are going to be wrong. Uh, the players themselves uh, don't ever seem extremely interested. They're always interested in that higher prize of the title. I mean, these players, even to be in the MVP consideration, you have to – I mean, your team has to be title contenders. Uh, so I think they're always more interested in that prize itself than uh, individual accolades like the MVP trophy. Um so I'm just sick of hearing of it, hearing about the MVP race every year. It just seems to be for stretches of time. It just seems to always be the same three, four players in consideration. And there's only so much hype and only so many different ways you can skin a cat. So yeah. Yeah. I'm, 
I'm just in. I, I'm ready. I'm ready for the playoffs to start and having more NBA uh, highlights and storylines than just who's going to win that MVP at the end of the year. All right. So uh, predictions, Justin. Who uh, who's your predictions uh, heading into this week? Well, my prediction is the UConn men's basketball <laughs> team will win. Doc. The oh. national title. Yes, it's a shock because I've said it on off the map. I said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. Uh, that is my prediction for this week. And another prediction probably would be the UConn-Miami game being a close eight-point game. So I'm going to go, let's say, 77-69 to 69 or 78-70. Okay. to 70. I think that'll be the final score of the game uh, between UConn and Miami. My prediction uh, is the first game on Saturday, Florida Atlantic and San Diego State. I mentioned it earlier. I alluded to it earlier. It's going to be a low-scoring game. I'm actually going to say the total is going to be under 115. Major difference than what the sports books currently have it at, at 131 and a half. Uh, like I said, Florida Atlantic, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle shooting the ball. Uh, they are a team that lives and dies by the three. We all know the Final Fours played in a football stadium that they make into a basketball stadium. Shooters, particularly uh, long-distance shooters like the three-point shooters, that we see it every single year. They struggle in these environments, when uh, in these big environments where the depth perception is all messed up. Uh, get you know when they transform these big, big NFL stadiums. So. I, I expect Florida Atlantic to have trouble shooting the ball. And then I we already know, like I said earlier in the show, San Diego State is very good defensively. Um, so, I, yeah, this game is going to go under 115. I would suggest uh, buying the points there, betting that under at the 115, because uh, this game is going to be a 60 to 54 San Diego State. And uh, we'll ultimately end up seeing them go on to the championship game okay well that's the show uh we'll see you guys all next week uh keep on traveling